Hello, and thanks for listening to this episode of the MSHP podcast. I'm Rob Fields, Senior Vice President and Chief Medical Officer for Pop Health here at Mount Sinai. Uh, and I have the good Dr. Kevin Manjal here with us uh, as emergency room uh, physician. But in this context, he's going to be talking to us about uh, community paramedicine and some of the pretty amazing work he's done here on, on building that program. I appreciate your time, Kevin. Thanks for having me. Oh, of course. Um, Kevin, uh, you know, probably when f- you decided to go to fellow- to residency training in emergency medicine, you weren't thinking, hey, I want to build a community paramedicine program. So how did, how did you end up here? Uh, so I... Uh, I went into emergency medicine residency kind of out of a desire to um, be on the front lines of, mm-hmm. of medicine. And then uh, while I was in emergency medicine, I became really fascinated with some of the the way policies at the macro level kind of affect the way we do care at right. the individual patient level. Right. So I was planning to pursue sort of a, a, a policy career and a uh, a you know, getting an MPH and um, and and you know, still being uh, you know largely clinical, but having a voice in terms of you know what are the incentives that you know affect the way we make decisions. Right. During that uh, emergency medicine residency, I did a four-year program at LIJ, um, Long Island Jewish. Uh huh. Um, For those of you not from New York, <laughs> <laughs> um, while uh, I was doing that, I realize that, you know, we're not on the front lines. The EMS providers hmm. that are out in the field are really on the front lines. Right. And wouldn't it be really cool to kind of, you know, not only learn about what they do, but influence the way uh, they care for patients. There's so many decisions that go into system design mm-hmm. of EMS that affects the way care happens for so many patients. Sure. So I really think of it as this amazing field of applied population health yeah um, because you're making decisions about regionalization of care which hospitals should patient go to for which conditions you know what response modality should you send to a, a given patient with a certain complaint right um, you know what are the options we provide to provide what's the training what's the equipment and all of those things uh, the interplay between those decisions um, uh, then affects the care that's applied essentially to the entire population yeah, in New York. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Yeah. So I found it a super fascinating career. Um, while I was doing pursuing that career, mm-hmm. um, I once again became fascinated at the policy level. Mm-hmm. So what are the incentives and policy le- levers that are affecting mm-hmm. how we're doing things? And one of the things that um, anyone out there who's met me before, <laughs> I've probably, within a few minutes of talking talking to them, have mentioned that, did you know that EMS only gets paid if they drive a patient to the hospital. Meanwhile, a very common question of a triage nurse in the ED is, you know, why did you, you bring this here? <laughs> or, or asking the EMS provider, why did you bring him to the ER? Right. There's really no other choice that we give them at a policy level, right. a regulatory level. Exactly. Sure. Um, Their hands are tied. Right. And so I became obsessed with um, how the the financial incentive combined with the uh, regulatory framework that was created many, many years ago when the idea of putting an ambulance out there was simply as a way of getting them to the hospital and how that was totally misaligned with everything we keep talking about, about how we want to take care, keep patients well at yeah, home, right. keep patients well in the community, find the most appropriate level of care for patients. Right. Um, 
And so I found it, um, I guess, both interesting, frustrating, and an opportunity to affect that intersection. Yeah. So in my career, I've kind of attacked it on the policy level. Yeah. I've attacked it on um, sort of academic research level. And I've been very fortunate over the last uh, handful of years to be able to actually affect it through uh, creating a program yeah. uh, that somewhat operationalizes the way, at closer to the way I think EMS was always intended to be. Right. Um, and hopefully um, hopefully we're making a difference for patients and, and kind of... Uh, we're shining a spotlight on, on the capacity of EMS. Mm-hmm. Um, interestingly, as we get into the details more, we do everything in our program to abide by all of the current regulations um, and uh, at the regional level, you know, city level, state level, national level, and yet we're able to craft this program. And how much better could that program be if all of EMS was operating that way mm-hmm. and if... Uh, we can actually start to affect some of those policy levers. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. I, I listen to your story and see so many similarities with mine and others. The folks that I know that it, why they're into pop health is, you know, on, on the primary care side, and the, a lot of the folks I know in pop health are emergency room physicians and or primary care physicians because I, th- I think they are trying to solve the same problems. Like we, I think in both instances, in different contexts, but in both instances, I think you are at at the front lines of seeing how the the way f- um, the finances of healthcare are structured incentivize really bad behavior, bad habits, both on the provider side and frankly on the patient side too. Right, like the system is set up to be expensive and inefficient. The way right, it is. It right. Just, and and it also just seems somehow just grossly unjust. <laughs> I feel like the people who need it the most often can't get it. And, yeah, all all those frustrating things are sound like are some similarities about what drive us to do what we do. Absolutely, and um, of course, um, you know, I've spent um, most of my career working, uh, you know, at hospitals that serve a diverse population. Uh-huh. But you know, the the skew in the emergency department is often towards the underserved. Absolutely, um, and to those that are, um, you know, have multiple comorbidities and it's complex, and there's. You know, there's so much in emergency medicine um, where we kind of hear the stories of patients about how they ended up here in the ER. Right. And on the one hand, the ER is the place that nobody necessarily wants to go, but mm-hmm. at the same time, we have built this interesting model of care, which is kind of a one-stop shop. Mm-hmm. And on some level, it actually is extraordinarily efficient. Yeah, <laughs> right. Um, because uh, it can accomplish That's a lot. Right. Um, but there is, you know, and and you know, if we got even deeper here, we, you know, the idea of avoiding ED visits is partly because of the way we pay differently right. for care in the ED versus care somewhere else. Right. And if that changed, maybe we. We have to re- reevaluate. Yeah, no, that's right. Doing. That's right. So, um, you know, the, all all these things are very interesting. But at the same time, um, you know, uh, within emergency medicine, I think we're a little schizophrenic ourselves. Mm-hmm. You know, we have uh, a a good portion of our interest in this specialty, and 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 in certain individuals within the specialty, that a good portion of the motivation is around critical care. Mm-hmm and uh, distinguishing sick from not sick. And if you're not sick, then, you know, let's 
let's get you out of here. And, you know, there was a phrase popularized about treat and street. Well, you know, the connotation there could be that, okay, you're getting somebody out back home, great. But the connotation could also be, like, not really worried about what happens to them once they leave the ED and you're just focused about the emergency department. On the other hand, there's a good portion of emergency physicians that went, go into it and a good portion of the motivation of any individual physician that goes into it, this desire to serve the public and all patients and particularly the underserved. Mm-hmm. And we recognize it as, as an opportunity to capture vulnerable patients. And so there's a temptation to bring as much of the hospital and the system into the ED to capture those vulnerable mm-hmm. patients. Um, and so we're caught in this dichotomy, you know, of, uh, you know, do we do we embrace the fact that we have patients who right. weren't yeah, that's captured in other ways and yeah. we want to spend more time with them? Right. Or do we want to just focus on the really critically sick? On throughput. Yeah. <laughs> on throughput, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's, that's a hard one for sure. Uh, it, you know, depends on which hat you're wearing, I guess, right? right? Like a... Uh, they, but I think I'll tell you early in my shift. I'm all about <laughs> taking extra time to uh, deal with the social factors. That's the real human health. part, right there. <laughs> and late in my shift, especially because it all, what always happens to me, and this is a you know uh, something that probably hurts my metrics, is that early in my shift, I will be one patient who I just I really dive in and I yeah. try to help, and it slows me down. And I come back out of that room, and the board looks bad, and you know that point right, then you react I turn into a throughput person yeah you know, and so I, I wish mean, it's I hard could, not to I mean yeah. you have that sort of input right like right. you have that visual yeah. input you know the complaints that people are waiting yeah on. exactly and um, yeah know. it's hard it's hard to win at both but right. you could completely see the desire for both right right, right. yeah um, if you could highlight a little bit about the the start of the community paramedicine program I I think you know I clearly hear the motivation and the understanding and the drive, but getting anything going is often challenging. Sure. I think getting anything going in a large academic center, it's its own level of challenging. And then you put the New York City vibe on top of that, that seems even harder. Um, tell me about how you got started and how that went down. When I came to Sinai, part of the motivation was um, I wanted to continue to pursue um, this idea of, of you know, innovating on the policy end and the practical end of, of EMS. Um, I was really fortunate to have a fantastic mentorship in the e- emergency department. I'm Dr. Lynn Richardson, I'm currently uh, Vice Chair of Research in uh, Emergency Medicine, was my mentor. Um, Dr. Andy Jagoda, extraordinarily supportive folks. Uh, they really saw that there was a vision and they kind of, they almost, they pretty much always said yes. And so I'm grateful to Mount Sinai because um, I, I describe it to everyone, it's a yes place. You know, you have to to work to get it done, but people aren't trying to block things for simply yeah. the purpose of blocking them. Yeah, um, that's not true so, everywhere, for yeah, sure. Yeah, so, um, so I was you know, really uh, well-supported, uh, started on some research projects, uh, built up uh, some ideas and some mm-hmm. relationships, um, and I developed a, a pretty strong relationship with um, some folks at the Mount Sinai Visiting Doctors Group. And we have mm-hmm. lots of ideas about how wouldn't it be great if we can, you know, uh, have EMS play a role in the community, um, help support the kind of care that they're providing. Um, and so we uh, 
during the second round of the uh, CMMI, Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, Healthcare Innovation Awards, I spent that entire summer with the encouragement of Dr. Richardson and Dr. Goda building up a massive proposal, literally titled Reinventing EMS. Um, nice. Uh, that's pretty bold. That's pretty bold. <laughs> um, ironically, it's pretty much exactly what the Medicare ET3 model oh, is now. Um, in that model, uh, I, I basically developed a network of, I think, some number of practices that were going to be willing to accept alternative destinations directly from the from the field, mm-hmm. and um, and uh, we were going to develop build a telehealth system, um, right. uh, which is another asset we now have here at Sinai. Um, and um, while I was building that, one of the partners was visiting doctors. Meanwhile, they were also leading an application for the the MACT program, mm-hmm. um, and the, the, you know, the hospitalization at home program. Um, so they um, so they were a partner in my grant, and I was a partner in their grant. <laughs> Fortunately, one of them got funded the the MACT program, which we all know and love. And um, uh, so in that model. So again, my application was more about 911 alternative mm-hmm. destinations. In their model, it was a non 911 system. When you have a patient that's already hospitalized, the idea is, well, we, we probably shouldn't be calling 911. Can we build an EMS capability to respond acutely? I, I used the analogy, like you know, in a hospital, you need a call bell. Like, right? Like, do you have a call bell of somebody that can, can, that home, can come? Sure. So, um, so we were with that grant. We had uh, basically the support to develop um, a curriculum uh, for the paramedics um, to develop um, kind of a workflow, and um, we uh, in that model the idea was that the physicians that staffed the hospital home program would themselves give orders to the medics. Right. That was something that wasn't standard and isn't standard in New York City and probably in most places. So there is a infrastructure or a, a framework for giving uh, medical orders to paramedics known as online medical control. The s- qualifications vary in every region. In mm-hmm. New York City, there's very high standards to get that certification. Um, it was what I would say would fairly it would be too high a bar for us to put our hospital home doctors through that program. Okay. We ap- applied, and after several votes, a permutation of it was approved at the regional EMS council to have these hospitals, hospital at home physicians, get certified as something known that we that we invented called telemedicine physician certification. Um, and this allowed them to only provide orders outside the 911 system to patients with whom they had a relationship, okay. a previous relationship. Yep. So um, still was a high bar to get them all certified, um, too high a bar for long, large scalability. But we did get about six docs from that practice certified. While we were throughout, that took about six months to a year, including the legal process agreements between the EMS uh, provider and Mount Sinai. Right. During that process, we were able to get additional funding from the Samuels Foundation to extend the exact same model to the outpatient Mount Sinai visiting doctor's patients. There's okay. some overlap of physicians, um, 
but basically not just to support the population in the hospital right. home, but support this other population. Yeah. So that was, you know, the beginning of a fantastic partnership. Um, we initially did about 36 patients uh, visits between, um, I think it was September of 2015 and February of 2016. So our EMS partner uh, that we had invested in, trained, um, already prepaid for quite a bit, um, went bankrupt. Oh, no. Um, uh, in February 2016. I think I still remember the day, February 25th. That happened rel- relatively suddenly. Um, and wow. um, so the program went cold. Hospital Home continued. Mount Sinai Vision Doctors, of course, continued. But we didn't have the community paramedicine function. Um, but we took that time to analyze the data of those 36 visits. Um, we uh, found a control group yeah. um, and we did a 30-day follow period in both groups and found um, a reduction in ED visits of about, I think, 13 visits, including any bounce backs over those 30 days. Wow. And a reduction of six admissions compared to the control wow. group. So that created an initial estimate of savings um, before paying EMS of about $2,000 per dispatch and then if you actually pay EMS and pay the physician to do this work you're probably around $1,400 that helped us get um, future support we were able to eventually after about about full 12 months get relaunched with a new EMS agency we had to train all new providers we were able to rethink through the operational format so in some ways maybe it was a blessing um, I think the next EMS agency, we also focused on their highest end providers, their critical care and supervisor providers to be the ones to do these interventions rather than a whichever medic is available kind of approach. I think we got much better quality. Um, and uh, we also, in that time, built, uh, we also, in that time, were able to internally apply for um, support um, through the the district and Mount Sunny Health Partners uh, uh, group, and um, that thinking about how we could you know go from serving hospital at home and Mount Sunny visiting doctors who we were putting the physicians through roughly like twenty four hours mm-hmm. of work yeah. to become certified. Like that's never going to be scalable. Right. right. We figured out in that year off how to make it scalable. And the model was that we have today, which I think is I'm really excited about, is that we have uh, a group of emergency physicians that staff uh, a telehealth service. So they're, they already have the certification, right? They're available 24 hours a day. We still have to get them certified, but to make an ED, because it's an emergency medical services certification, it's kind of geared towards yeah, emergency medicine. Yeah. So there's v- it's much less work, probably mm-hmm. uh, less than 12 hours work. Mm-hmm. And then we have this small cadre of physicians that are certified. And with that, we, we could basically allow any physician or nurse um, or NP or PA who is on the phone with a patient struggling to decide whether they should go to the emergency department or have them be seen the next day, have the option to ask community paramedicine to do the visit because we'll have the ED physicians available, we'll have, we have EMS available, and then that 
uh, referring provider can participate in the evaluation if they choose to. Um, so it becomes a three-way conversation and we're able to have an emergency physician provide the legal authority to um, authorize the use of medications that aren't necessarily um, uh, wouldn't necessarily be used in standing orders for, right. for an EMS call. Right. Um, they could authorize the decision not to transport. Right. And you have either primary care doctors or specialists or um, or any of the providers in their care team kind of be on that call, provide background information, and kind of make sure they're comfortable with the treatment plan and then assure the follow-up and continuity of care. And so this model, you know, has been extraordinarily successful. Um, I mean, it was it's it's similar rates of avoiding transport. Right. But the point is that we now have a model that yeah, we literally can, we can offer to to anyone. Uh, we just have to find the right ways to make sure it's sustainable. Right. Um, when you, you mentioned a couple of things there, so the uh, the the difference. It sounds like the be, the potential beginnings of the referral are probably the same. Uh, in that, uh, there's usually some interaction with a healthcare professional. Uh, that person is communicating signs or symptoms of an exacerbation of something or some sort of symptom that would normally require an immediate evaluation. The 911 process is the same. It sounds like you call, uh, is that right? Or so uh, the entry point is the same as it would be for hospital okay. at home. Um, we coach all of our referring providers to kind of consciously decide that they don't necessarily need 911 uh, if they if they think it's a could be a heart attack or a stroke right, or other life threatening condition yeah. they should still use 911 but if they think it's an emergency yeah but separate from life threatening immediately life threatening yeah then they can choose to use us and use and they call you they don't call 911 they call they they sep- yeah they they call outside the 911 system they call Mount Sinai it's operationalized through the transfer center um and they simply ask for community medicine, and they they provide they answer a handful of questions about the reason for the referral, and then a, a paramedic gets there within 60 minutes. So 60 minutes, like you know, one hour response time to the patient's home, to literally their bedside. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a it's a remarkable capability, and it's it's actually not even that big a deal in the EMS mindset, mm-hmm. right? But from a population health oh, standpoint, it's, it's yeah. like you know, it's it's potentially game changing, yeah. right? Um, so the, you know, the way I always describe it is that, you know, for patients, they don't necessarily always know, um, how serious the symptoms they have are they right. If they're worried about them, we want them to call the right resource, but it's still hard to figure out what that right resource is. Right. Um, you know, we, we definitely, you know, patients, one of the most successful marketing campaigns ever uh, from a public health standpoint is you know letting people know about the existence of 911 you know i don't think that we need to do any more work mm-hmm. um, uh, to train our patients yeah, to if do they something think different they're having an emergency that they should call 911 sure but what we do want patients to do and i you know i think it depends on our you know on what we can you know manage but 
I think from a nostalgic healthcare perspective, when you think about like the, you know, your community family doc, like you would want um, them to feel comfortable calling their physician group, right? Or their mm -hmm. practice or their health system, if we take it at a large level, when they feel something and they're not sure what to do. So for us to, con you know, to you know, use this program and other programs to kind of develop that capability, I think really serves our patients' needs um, around this whole issue of acute, unscheduled care. Um, you know, they're starting with a problem, maybe it's shortness of breath. You know, they're a patient who has shortness of breath episodes f not frequently. Sure. For them, they can kind of tease out, you know, is this more significant, is it not? They're not sure. We want them to feel comfortable calling and getting guidance. Yeah. And you guys can provide care, like direct care, under this model, right? right? You, you mentioned certain medications that wouldn't normally be part of like a standard 911 call? Well, the, we o to be clear, we only use medications that they have, and so we really haven't added anything. Okay. But um, their protocol might be that they should, um, you know, if a patient's in respiratory distress, do X, Y, Z. And if they're not, then, you know, the treatments may or may not be standing orders. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, or they might give seniors and automatically transport, right? So right. Uh, by by creating this connection with the physician on a patient who's you know essentially you know stable, stable or, or sure. even like a little towards the unstable side, um, but like not certainly not life threatening. Right. Um, we can um, we can influence or customize mm -hmm. the care to that patient's needs using not only their the IV medications that they carry, but perhaps utilizing some of the oral, previously prescribed medications in different doses at the physician's discretion. Yeah, um, and we can um, we can request a reassessment. Um, we can, you know, e-prescribe some medications to augment the care that's mm -hmm. been provided. So it really does become the beginning of like a virtual emergency department. Yeah, um, which is another idea I'm super excited about. Yeah. <laughs> um, and Kim, the interaction is happening over video with the right. EMS? So. Right. It starts with a patient. They have a new symptom. They call their practice, uh, their provider. That provider um, has still has all the other choices they might have, but you know, far too often the choices are limited to um, go to the go to the ED, yeah. which might mean for some patients a 911 or an ambulance transport versus uh, let's get you into the office the next business day. Mm -hmm. um, so in that gap, or even patients that you tell to come the next business day, there's some proportion of those patients that end up in the emergency mm -hmm. department. Um, so providing this choice, you know, 60 minute response time, you know, that that's our goal. So they call Mount Sinai Transfer Center, they ask for community paramedicine, we get the paramedic out, they do a full assessment of the patient, um, and then they will um, contact what we call online medical control which is again the transfer center, they connect the emergency physician, the paramedic who's with the patient, and they invite the referring provider. The three of them do a video uh, interface, um, and then um, that provider gets to influence or, or recommend the care they want. And from a legal perspective, it comes as a as an order from the uh, online med control physician. Mm -hmm. um, following, you know, if the patient needs to be transported, 
we can get that patient to the most appropriate hospital. If that patient uh, does not need transport, um, then the, the, they agree on an action plan. It's actually the paramedic writes out sort of a discharge action plan, which uh, has everyone's name on it, what meds were given, what treatments were given, what are the next steps in care, and who to call for follow-up, mm -hmm. or who to call if they have any questions. Um, and I think that's a, a key thing um, that kind of helps, you know, the patient be very clear about what just transpired because mm -hmm. it is a, a new type of encounter. Uh, and the feedback from patients, from the referring providers, even from the emergency physicians has been extraordinary. I bet. Um, Do you have trouble recruiting uh, emergency docs? Emergency docs? I mean, not really. I mean, it's it's big. It's kind of blended with some other telehealth okay. um, programs. And so there's some who are more interested in telehealth than others. Sure. And unfortunately, um, uh, emergency medicine seems to always be a little bit uh, short in terms of uh, you know our staffing. So it, from that perspective, it can be a little challenging, but I don't think from an interest perspective. And uh, even the folks that do telehealth, they tell me of all the types of calls that they do, they find these community primary medicine calls really rewarding because mm -hmm. they feel like they're they're really helping patients. You know, one of our partners or referring providers is, is, is a hospice. And so for hospice patients, classically, you know, you're at home, your loved one is suffering, you feel they need to do something, you call the hospice agency, they may or may not be able to do something right away, so you call 911. Mm -hmm. 911 gets there, they're not particularly trained in a protocol for hospice patients. Right. Um, if the documentation isn't perfect, or there's any doubt, um, this patient who might be you know, hypoxic, but that was their baseline, or you know, tachypnic or alter, whatever right. it is, they have an acute medical condition, they end up transporting patients yeah. more often right. than not. Right. And um, it's not necessarily what the patient wants or needs. Yeah. And then they get to the hospital, it's like, well, why'd you bring this? And, you know, and then the, um, then there, you know, there is a long kind of reassessment of like what the goals of care are, and depending on what information is available at what time, you know, sometimes hospice actually gets revoked. You know, oh, and, gosh. And so, um, and oh, that's, that's a terrible. huge problem for yeah. the patients, for the of hospice course. agency, yeah. and even the emergency department. So um, I think this is a much better care model. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, with our hospice patients, there's, you know, really high levels of satisfaction from those providers to have this resource, get there in an hour or less, and um, provide the level of calmness to the situation. Right provide some support, and it allows the hospice physician to, earlier than they would have, be able to coach the family uh, on using the, the care pack that might be in the home. Sometimes it's in the first few days of hospice, then there isn't a care pack yet in the home, so we can utilize the, um, the medications that the paramedic has available. So again, it's been such a rewarding partnership. I bet. Um, and uh, so looking forward to growing that. Yeah. Kevin, in the, in the last few minutes, I, uh, I'm wondering if you could share uh, your maybe your hopes from an advocacy standpoint and how uh, the model is growing across the country. I know there's been some updates on the Medicare side, but uh, just what what you're hoping, what you're kind of fighting for, if you will, on the advocacy side around community. Sure, finance. sure. So I guess you know at the the most simple true statement is that you know EMS is this undervalued resource mm -hmm. that we should do a better job leveraging to meet the goals of you know, modern healthcare. Right. Um, now within that, there's um, some really exciting innovations 
um, you know, the model that we perform, um, we call it community paramedicine. Um, others call it more like a mobile integrated healthcare or just a telehealth enabled EMS. Um, there are other models out there that are interesting and being tested around using EMS providers to do um, home visits following discharge from the hospital, right. possibly doing multiple visits over a period of time to help provide education and support to patients to help keep them out of the hospital. There's some what seem to be very successful programs around um, patients that um, have, you know, are um, high utilizers of the EMS and emergency department system. You know, some of those patients might be well suited to other types of interventions by home care or health homes or social workers or behavioral health. Right. But sometimes EMS is an interesting, flexible resource yep. that is very nimble and able to kind of touch these patients both proactively and then in the moment mm-hmm. when there is a, a moment of utilization and um, kind of having that level of consistency and having a care plan those patients through the EMS system sometimes helps meets for some patients helps meet their needs better yeah um, and then there's other whole group of interventions or, or ideas around within the 911 system de-escalating care um, uh, transferring calls to a nurse triage line or to um, take patients from the field to alternative locations like urgent care centers, uh, primary care practices, um, even perhaps dialysis centers, substance abuse centers, sobering centers. Um, And then of course doing telehealth to the patient in the field in the 911 system. Um, So across this whole spectrum of things that are sometimes called community paramedicine or mobile integrated healthcare, the goal would be to try to remove barriers, you know, maintain appropriate levels of oversight and, um, and I guess, uh, sort of, you know, regulatory authority, but at the same time, you know, not prevent these new models from being tested, um, and to, um, and hopefully allow them to flourish, um, particularly when it comes to, you know, uh, the financial sustainability. So, right. um, you referenced the Medicare, um, uh, model so there's a new Medicare program called Emergency Triage Treatment and Transport, abbreviated Medicare ET3, um, and uh, it's just got announced in February, and they hope as early as January of 2020, in about across about 30% of the country, to allow for transport to alternative destinations and telehealth in the field to be reimbursed at similar rates. Um, as traditional EMS mm-hmm. transport. Super exciting, um, hoping that that grows. I'm hoping that New York State Medicaid and other state Medicaid offices and private payers join in they that follow suit, sure. to make a multi-payer model because it's really hard to to change your system with only, with one, only one payer. payer. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah. And then I'm hoping that um, in New York that we can allow so you know, not just the 911 system, but these outside the 911 system, these healthcare-based or even non-healthcare-based kind of initiatives um, uh, that are, try to be a little bit more proactive or that are responsive like ours um, to urgent needs but don't go to the 911 system, that those can also be included in reimbursement schemes and, um, uh, and uh, are accounted for from a regulatory perspective. 
What we don't want to have happen is, um, unfortunately right now, EMS is somehow almost so overregulated that we're kind of disenfranchising this group of providers. Right. And there's a, because this opportunity exists, you're having lots of other uh, licensed and unlicensed providers, private companies and others doing innovative things that I applaud them for the innovation and doing it. But it's frustrating that EMS is kind of already able to do them, but sometimes we don't let them um, participate. Right. Well, I certainly hope for that as well. You know, we uh, certainly a believer in the program and uh, like we, you and I have talked before, um, hope to continue to figure out ways of maximizing the resource. It's been, it's been really powerful. So Kevin, really appreciate your work and your time. And thanks for talking with us about the program. Yeah, thank you for this opportunity. And um, I hope uh, we can continue to grow it and, uh, and build off into other programs that can serve patients in that moment of, you know, an unscheduled need. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Thank you for listening to the MSHP podcast. And if you have ideas for future episodes, please email me at robert.fields at mountsinai.org. Thanks a lot. Mm